0: Okay, let me tell you a story, uh, one that you have for sure heard before, but hear it again with me. There was once a people who were enslaved. They were captives, trapped under a, a foe, an enemy that they could not defeat. Their foe, their enemy, had rebelled against God and wanted to be greater than God. And so God would soon cast him down. And he defied God and crushed God's people ruthlessly in hatred of this God. And this enslaved people suffered and languished from bitter toil. And their captivity was sure and it seemed like death was certain and sure for all of them. And when it seemed like there was no hope and there was nothing but death, a baby was born. And not any ordinary kind of baby, this special baby, this chosen child who would grow up to be the deliverer of God's people. And when this child grew, he proved that God had sent him with many signs and wonders to the amazement of all the people. And he proved that God was moving and acting to rescue and deliver and redeem God's people. And alas, through death and the shedding of the blood of the Lamb, this deliverer rescued God's people and set them free from captivity and brought them out of bondage. And they were set free. And God made a way for them to cross over from death to life. And he parted a way for them to have access to him. And now he would live with them, and they would be his people, and he would be their God, and they would dwell together. Okay, here's my question. What story is that? And and here's my question. What is the name of the deliverer, the baby, the child who grew up to be that savior? And, And the truth is, well, it sort of depends who you ask, right? If you were to ask a a person, a man, living in the years after Christ, and you told that story and you asked him, who is this about? Well, what he might do is he might open his Bible, and he might go to the second half of the book, and he might open to the New Testament and begin to tell you about Jesus. And he might begin to tell you about the gospel, the good news, the story of salvation, and how God had set his people free through Jesus. But... If you could ask someone who lived in the years before Christ, if you could go back and ask him and tell that same exact story with those same exact details, and you asked him that story and and who this was about, he would open his Bible to the very front of the Scriptures. He, He wouldn't go to this half, he would go to this half, and he would begin to tell you the story of Moses. And and he would begin to tell you the story of of the good news, of, of the story of salvation, and how God had set his people free through a deliverer named Moses. And if we could get these two men in a room somehow, if we had some kind of time machine and could get them to be in one room and face one another and talk to each other, they would soon find out that their stories sounded remarkably similar. As one spoke to the other and the other spoke to the one, they would begin to share a great deal in common as they talked through their story. One would use words like salvation and redemption, and the other would know what he was talking about. And the other would use words like ransom and rescue and deliver, and he would know what he was talking about. And the two would just find themselves nodding their heads in agreement. And if the Holy Spirit were present working in that room then he who would have opened to this half of the Bible would understand his story of Jesus better by listening to his story of Moses. And he would understand that his story of Moses was pointing ahead to his story of Jesus. And the two would rejoice in the gospel. He would rejoice in the gospel and where it had come from. And he would rejoice in the gospel to see where it was going. And we would do really well to just sit in the room and listen to both of them, right? And and what we would do really well is to allow these two stories to collide and become one big story. In this season, what we're about to do is we're launching today a brand new preaching series, a, a brand new sermon series. And and what we're doing is we're looking through the biblical book of Exodus. So for the next, uh, I don't want to tell you how long the series is. Uh, for fear that you will panic and run out of the room. Let's just say this week I've been working through our preaching calendar and we are all set till December 25th on Sunday. So we know what's coming for the remainder of the year. So for the next little while, we'll be in this book. If you've been with us for some time, you know that we've been jumping through a, a few different topical series and they've been important and good. But for a while, I have felt like we should be in one book of the Bible, start at the beginning, go all the way to the End and, and this is sort of my act of penitence. So I found a good long book of the Bible and will be here for a while. So what we're doing is we're studying the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible. So if you have the black Bibles and if you don't have a Bible, at some point grab one because we'll be walking through this text. It's on page 45. And what we're doing is we're calling this book, this series, The Gospel According to Exodus. All right. So for the next remainder of our preaching series, we're calling this The Gospel according to Exodus. If you have one of these black Bibles, if you were to flip open to the New Testament and the first four books, what you'd find at the heading of each of these books is that it would say the gospel according to, and then it'll say Matthew, or the gospel according to Mark and Luke and John. And the reason for that is that these books are all about Jesus, And what I want to contend is that you could put that same heading over this second book of the Bible. You could call this the gospel according to Exodus, because as we're going to see, as you walk through this series, this whole thing is about Jesus. The book of Exodus is huge, and I don't mean that in in terms of its size. It's 40 chapters, but I mean it in terms of its importance. The book of Exodus is this weighty, important, grand book throughout the scriptures. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the writers will often go back to Exodus to help explain things. Does that make sense? So throughout the Old Testament, they'll refer back to Exodus. Throughout the New Testament, they'll refer back to Exodus to help explain and unpack and for people to understand what God is doing in the world. So, for example, throughout the New Testament, you'll find that it constantly refers back to Exodus to help you understand who Jesus is and what he accomplished. See, this book, the Bible, is not a textbook, right? So if, if you want to find out what faith is, you can't really flip to the back, look at the glossary, and find a definition. It doesn't work that way. It's not a textbook. If you want to know what faith is, the Bible would say, let me point you to Abraham. And as you see his story, as you begin to understand that and get a good look at that, you'll understand what faith is. That's the way the, the scriptures work. So if you wanted to look up words like redemption, or salvation, or rescue, deliverance, ransom, the scriptures don't have a glossary in the back. What they would do is point you back to Exodus. Because what Exodus is, is it is the prototype. It's the pattern for how God will save. And and, and if you want to know what it looks like to be saved, the Bible would say, start with Exodus. Throughout the New Testament, you're going to find they constantly point back to Exodus. So, for example, the the New Testament writers have seen Jesus. They've seen his birth and life and death and resurrection. And they want to explain what these things are and mean. And so, for example, they they come up with this. Okay, Jesus has died as a substitute. He took the place of some. And and through the shedding of his blood, people were saved. How, How are we going to explain that? And then the Holy Spirit comes and the light bulbs go off and they go, well, that's just like the lamb. They point back to the Exodus and they go, look, if you, if you see the sacrificial lamb, if you see the Passover lamb, you get a picture of who Jesus is and what he accomplished. Or, or the New Testament will want to say, look, Jesus is the embodiment of access to God. He, he dwelt among us and when we came to him, we were coming to God. How are we going to explain that to everyone? And the light bulbs would go off and the Holy Spirit would show them. Well, that's like the tabernacle. And if you don't know what the tabernacle is, we've got a long time to explain it. So don't worry. But but what they do is they'd go back to the Exodus and say, Look, if you understand that, you get who Jesus is and what he is doing. And over and over again, the New Testament will do this. When when it wants to speak of sin and slavery and freedom and, and what it means to be a nation unto the Lord and a kingdom of priests, all these different things, the New Testament will keep going back. And it keeps going back to this book. Almost as if to say, if you understand that, you'll be able to understand this. We could give you lots more examples. One person said it like this. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, And the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed, right? The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. You can think through that for a moment, but that's true, and that's certainly true with Exodus. The idea being that you can't really understand Exodus fully unless you understand Jesus, But I want to contend that the opposite is somewhat true, that you can't fully understand Jesus and his work and what he accomplished unless you understand Exodus as well. And so what we're doing is we're taking a good long look at the book of Exodus because we as a church are committed to taking a good long look at the person and work of Jesus. As we do that, what we're going to do is we're going to break this book into three parts. Okay, so that you don't have to feel like today we're going to get started and we're going to have to plow through these 40 chapters without a break. What we'll do is we'll do part one, which is chapters one through 15. Take a break, go to part two and then part three. And so what I want to do today is just sort of orient you to this book. I just want to get your feet sort of wet into what this book is and give you an introduction into the lay of the land so that you get a feel for the book that we're about to jump into. So, before we dive into the book and into chapter one and verse one, let me just give you some background on the book. Exodus is the second book of the Bible. But it's also the second book of five books called the Pentateuch. So the first five books of the Bible are called the Pentateuch. And that's just taken from a Greek word, penta, and you can hear it, Pentagon 5. And took just meaning scrolls or book or container. It was this set of these five books. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. These five books are called the Pentateuch, and and Jews will often refer to them as the Torah. And when they say Torah, they are using a word that's talking about a singular book. And the idea is, even though these are five books, they are one. And they've got to be read that way, that there's this great unity in everything in the Pentateuch, in the Torah. And so rather than seeing them almost as five different books, you could see them as five chapters within one book. And we'll see some of that today, that there's a great deal of interplay between what's happening across these books. Uh, These books were written by Moses. They're called the Books of Moses and largely written by him. You know, there are places which speak of his death, which were obviously written by others. But largely, these books were penned by Moses. Now, we're not entirely sure when the exodus that Moses writes about takes place. Scholars are generally divided into one of two places, some say it's the mid 13th century BC, some say it's even earlier in the 15th century, so somewhere around the 1260s or the 1400s, we're not completely sure. We don't have a great deal of historical data around this book, at least not as much as we moderns would like. But that's not to say that there is nothing. So, for example, you don't find any mention of the Hebrews in Egyptian monuments, Egyptian texts from the ancient world, right? There's no mention in Egyptian history about this people group, about these slaves. Now, before that alarms you or or causes you fear or causes you to doubt or suspect this book, I, I want you to hear that that's not completely surprising, we have other ancient documents about the Egyptians and they are notorious for being incredibly pro-Egypt and they record the wins and they hide the losses. That's the pattern you find. You find other documents of other ancient countries that have overcome and defeated the Egyptians and you find no mention of it in the Egyptian documents, right? They, they speak of where they win, they hide where they lose, And and that's not all that unfamiliar, even for us. So, for example, I'll give you an example. If you are to go into your closet, you are likely to find a 2008 Phillies world champion T-shirt. Right? What you're likely not to find is a 2009 lost to the Yankees World Series T-shirt. Right? Nobody does that. Nobody's got the T-shirt going, 2009, we almost came close but got beat. No, we've got the hats that say 2008, we've got the t-shirts that say 2008, and we just pretend like 2009 didn't happen. That's the way the Egyptians recorded their history. They would have said, here's where we won, here's where we defeated, here's where we came on top. We don't know anything about the Hebrews. So that shouldn't alarm us, that shouldn't surprise us. That's almost the way you would expect it to be. At the same time, I want to say that there is archaeological findings, historical data that do lend some support and and give us some thoughts about the story contained in Exodus. For example, history tells us that there were these enormous, massive building projects in Egypt that would have likely required some kind of enormous labor force, some kind of workforce to get these things done, and they happened to fall right around the dates where we think the exodus may have happened. Or history tells us, archaeological findings tell us, that right around the time where we think the exodus may have happened, there's this sudden spike in settlements around the land of Canaan. And the archaeological findings show us that there's this distinct culture that suddenly comes into play. That when they look at the layers and they see, here's what's buried at this level, and here's the pottery, and here's what the gods look like... All of a sudden, at the next layer, they find an entirely different culture and all these settlements. And at least one of the explanations that the scholars put forth is that what happened is what the scriptures say happened. That after the Exodus, the Hebrews invaded the land of Canaan and populated that place and took over. And suddenly there was a shift in culture and a shift in people group. Or I'll I'll give you another one, one that I thought was incredibly interesting. We know from history that there was this pharaoh named Akhenaten, who's the father of King Tut, who you've likely heard of. And during his time, consider this, there was this major revolution in Egyptian thought so that he introduced for the first time a monotheistic understanding of God. He rejected the polytheistic understanding of his father's many gods and adopted for a season monotheism. And that was soon countered by his descendants and they immediately switched it back. But what needed to have happened, and wouldn't you know, that seems to have been right after the exodus would have taken place. So what would have happened, what kind of a a seismic thing needed to have happened for the Pharaoh to reject the many gods and now adopt the idea that there is but one God. And again, one of the explanations that scholars put forth is, if this is true, then God went and assaulted the gods of Egypt, like we'll see in the plagues, and made a mockery of all of them, so that the very next king begins to adopt this idea that there might just be one God over all the gods. Right? We, we could keep going, but what I want you to hear is this. I have no idea when it happened, 1200s, 1400s BC, but I want us to hear that we have good reason to believe that it did happen. Biblical and extra-biblical evidence as such. Okay, enough of getting our feet wet then, and enough of talking about the book. Let's consider the book. Today, what we want to do is just walk through the first 14 verses, and again, just orient you to this book as we get ready to dive in. So if you have a Bible, you're on page 45. We're going to look at the first 14 verses, the verses that Keith read for us. Let me pray, submit our time to the Lord, and then we'll consider this together. Our God, we thank you for your word. We believe by faith that it is the revelation by which you are known, by which your acts have been recorded, by which your deeds have been told. We thank you that as we read this ancient book preserved for our sake, that as Paul says, it would be for our example. It would be so that we might orient our lives according to the story we see here. As we begin this consideration of this book today, as we begin this journey through the book of Exodus, we submit it to you today, Lord, and we'd ask for your blessing. We'd ask for your blessing on the mouths of every man who will preach from this pulpit. We ask for your blessing on the ears of every person who will sit and hear your word. We pray that in these coming weeks and months, you would bless Our journey through this book and through it all, we would see Jesus better and know him better and worship him better. We pray that you would do good things more than we know to ask. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, chapter 1, verse 1. Here's how it begins. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, and then two to four, you get a bunch of funny Jewish names, okay? Here's how the book of Exodus starts. It starts with this word that's not really translated in the English. The word that starts here is these are the names. The actual word would have been this Hebrew word vav that just means and. All right, so you think through that. Your elementary teachers told you never start a sentence with the word and. And not only does Exodus start with and, it begins a brand new book with the word and. Right? So it's not just starting a sentence. What would it be like to open a book and the first word says, and, and goes on? Whenever you use the word and, and these are, the immediate question is, wait, and is a continuation. And what happened before, right? What and does is picks up on something and then continues on. And so from the first word in Exodus, what you're given a clue into is, this is not a story in its own right. This is a continuation of the story that preceded it. Does that make sense? With the very first word, what the writer wants you to see is if you're going to know about this story, you've got to know about the story that came before it. And so what, what the word is trying to do is go, okay, you've got to get Genesis if you're going to understand where we are and where we're going in Exodus, And and so it picks up on the story that happened in Genesis. Genesis, the first book of the Bible, left of Exodus, is the story of creation, the beginnings of all things. And Exodus is the story of the beginnings of a people, the, the creation of a people called Israel. We're way back in our Bibles, really early. So at this point, there is no nation of Israel. All you have is Jacob and his sons that you see listed in verses 2 to 4. And so what Exodus is doing is it's picking up on the story that started in Genesis. So let me give you two seconds on that backstory. In Genesis, you've got this man named Abraham, who is this elder man who's got a barren wife. They've got no kids. And God comes to this man named Abraham and in chapter 12 and 15 makes with him this promise, this covenant. I'm going to bless you and make your name great and give you a nation, give you offspring. I'm going to give you children, descendants, as many as stars in the sky. And then as you keep reading the story, you find that God keeps his word. He opens the womb of this barren woman and gives them a son named Isaac. Isaac is also married to a barren woman with no prospect of children. And wouldn't you know, the promise continues because God works in her womb and opens it. And so now Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob's got 12 kids. And these boys are just a bunch of punks. And they hate especially their younger brother, Joseph. So now you've got Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. And because dad loves Joseph, they hate Joseph. So some of you know about sibling rivalry. Dad loved your sister more than you. You hate your sister, that sort of thing. I'm not speaking from personal experience. I'm just saying, right? So Joseph is loved by dad, hated by his brothers. So what his brothers do is they basically (coughs) sell him to slavery. He's sold to some merchants. He ends up through a series of events in Egypt. And through a series of events, he ends up saving Egypt in the midst of this terrible famine. He goes from literally a slave to ascended to the right hand of Pharaoh, ruling over this nation. And when you come to the close of Genesis, you find that Pharaoh loves Joseph and loves his people. Joseph moves his whole family down to Egypt at the Pharaoh's expense. The pharaoh literally says, Joseph, I command you, in Genesis 45 and 6, I command you, take these wagons and go grab your family and bring them. So you think through that. He's literally sending the national limo or the national jet to go pick up Joseph's family and at his expense, bring them to his land. He says to them in, in Genesis 45, have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. So I'm talking favored by Pharaoh. You get this scene where Joseph's family moves in and Pharaoh says, pick the best of the land. It's the spot named Goshen. You guys go live there. You got the scene where Joseph's dad, Jacob, blesses Pharaoh and they are in harmony and everything is good and everything is great. And then you've got this this verse 5 that tells us. Now we're back in Exodus 1. Verse 5 tells us that 70 persons moved down. So Joseph brings his father and his brothers and his brother's wives and their kids. And this whole family moves down to to Egypt, 70 in all. And that little detail is given because it's going to serve this great point. And the great point is this. It's a very small number that goes in it's going to be this enormous number that comes out. By the time we get through this story, you're going to find that 70 go in. By the time they're ready to come out, they are well over a million people. And then verse 7 tells us how they got there. Okay, verse 7 says, But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. In verse 6, we're told that Joseph and his brothers and that whole generation dies, but God hasn't forgotten them. Even though the heroes, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, are dead, God hasn't forgotten his people. He's going to continue to bless them. And so what you find is that they are being fruitful and multiplying and filling the land. Now, any student of the Pentateuch would hear those words And it would immediately bring them back to another scene that Moses had written. When you hear the words, they are being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth. That echoes back to Genesis 1. Right? If you remember Genesis 1, God creates the earth. And in verse 7, he gives this creation mandate, this command. You are to do what? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And what you find in Exodus is that's happening. God's keeping his promise. They're doing exactly that. They're being fruitful, they're multiplying, and they're filling the land. So by the time you get to verse seven, here's what I want you to see everything's good. They're in Egypt, they're favored by the Pharaoh, they're reproducing like rabbits, everything is good. And then verse eight comes, and everything goes dark, and it stays dark for nearly 12 chapters here's what verse 8 says. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Verse 9. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape the land. You read that a new pharaoh comes to power. A new king comes to power. And in verse 8, you're introduced now to the antagonist, to the bad guy in the story, right? Every great story, every epic story needs a good bad guy, right? Joker for the Dark Knight, the Russian guy for Rocky, the Yankees for the Phillies. Everyone needs a good bad guy. And in the Pharaoh, you have the bad guy of all bad guys. He is the villain of all villains. And you read, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. We're not entirely sure what that means. Maybe he slept through history class in Egypt and didn't know about him. Or maybe it just means that some time has passed and he didn't have any personal connection with him. Right? Genesis is going to tell us, Exodus is going to tell us that the Israelites are in Egypt for 400 years. And so some maybe some generations have passed and this young, new pharaoh comes to power and he no longer feels any connection to, (coughs) or no longer recognizes, the national debt that's sort of owed to Joseph, right? The pharaoh of old had made a big deal because this man saved their land. This new guy comes and he's got no connection. He's got no acknowledgement of the debt that's owed. In fact, Joseph and his people are just an annoyance to him. And, and what this Pharaoh knows is not Joseph. All he knows is that this immigrant population is becoming a growing problem. Literally. It's their growing that is the problem for him. Right? Look carefully again. He, he says, "...behold, the people of Israel are too many, too mighty. Come, let's deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply." So literally, their multiplying, in his eyes, is posing this national threat that needs to be dealt with. Now, this is very interesting. What is the pharaoh opposed to? He's opposed to their multiplying. What he is opposed to, it's not slavery that's first introduced. Slavery is his response to the problem. The problem is that they are being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth. Do you see that? What he sees as the big problem is that they are being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth. And that's when you go, wait a minute, whose idea was that? That they should be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And that's when you begin to see that the story of Exodus is ultimately not really a duel between Israel and Pharaoh. It's not even a fight between Moses and Pharaoh. This is a battle between Pharaoh and God because what, Moses, what Pharaoh is against is God. He is directly opposed to God and he's directly opposed to God's order of creation. And so what we'll see in the story is God literally disorders creation to punish and judge him as we're going to see in the plagues and in the sea. God is committed to multiplying these people and eventually through them, as it says in Genesis 3.15, bringing about a deliverer, a a promised savior. And Pharaoh is directly opposed to the multiplying of this people. And so he's going to deal with this growing problem in two ways. The first of which we'll consider this week. He's going to deal with it through slavery. Look at verses 11 through 14. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So see this again. Slavery isn't the original problem. Slavery is Pharaoh's response to the problem of their multiplying and growing. Slavery is his solution to fix the problem, which is that the Hebrews are multiplying. And so what he comes up with is a plan to fix the immigrant problem and the labor problem at the same time. He'll oppress this people and crush them and make them work as slaves and make them build for him great cities. And in doing this, Pharaoh's wickedness only grows deeper because now what he's doing is he's not only opposed to God's creation and their multiplication, He's opposed to who God is, right? His command is not just a political statement. It's a theological statement. Because what Pharaoh believes, as we'll study, is Pharaoh believes he is God incarnate. That's the thought of the day. He is the sun god Ra incarnate, God over all of Egypt. And so he also believes he is God over these slaves. And so they will not be freed to worship God, to serve him, and to glorify God. They will work for him to glorify him. Does that make sense? They're not going to be freed to worship and glorify God. They will be kept as slaves to work for him, to serve him, and to glorify his name. And that's when you can almost hear the serpent that you heard in Genesis 3, who, who whispered to Eve, Do this. And you will be like God. And it's that same sort of lie that's being whispered in Pharaoh's ear. You do this. Keep them here. Make them serve you. You will be like their God. And that's when you find that the rabbit hole goes a little deeper. And you find this is ultimately not even just a clash between Moses and Pharaoh. Or Israel and Pharaoh. Or even God and Pharaoh. This is the serpent at work again. And this is a clash between God and the continuing ongoing war with the serpent, with Satan. And Satan's tactic from the beginning has been to crush his people, God's people, through slavery. Hear that again. What you begin to see in the beginnings in Exodus is that Satan's tactic from the beginning (coughs) has been to crush God's people through slavery. We'll come back to this in the coming weeks. Again, I just want to get your feet wet. But this becomes a, if not one of the major metaphors that the New Testament picks up to describe our human condition. The slavery, the physical bondage of the Israelites becomes what the New Testament uses to explain the spiritual bondage of all men. Jesus, in John 8, will literally say that all human beings are slaves. Now, you can hear that, and that can sound a bit abstract. What does it mean that you are a slave? And again, we'll, we'll try and unpack that in the weeks to come. In his book, Redemption, this man named Mike Wilkerson points out that many of us can identify with this metaphor of slavery because we know it all too well. Some of you know this metaphor of slavery is a real one because you know what it's like to be addicted. Think through that. Some of you have known that your life has gone out of control, dominated by some addiction, that no matter how much you try to shake yourself free, you can't. And it keeps holding you and imprisoning you and and standing over you. Despite your every desire and every effort to be set free, you find that your hands and your feet and your heart are still enslaved. Despite every desire to break free of this thing that holds you, and you can list what it might be, you find that like a cruel master, it will not let you go. You've cried. You've prayed. You've promised this is the last time. And for the 10,000th time, you find yourself praying that prayer over and over and over. And you know all too well what it's like to be a slave. And all it leaves you with is this load of guilt and shame that you cannot free yourself from. And the worst part of the whole thing is that it's a slavery you chose. It's a a voluntary slavery. Some of you know the metaphor of slavery really well because you know what it's like to be addicted. Some of you know the the metaphor of slavery because you know what it's like to be abused. It's not that you sinned, it's that you were sinned against. And and some of you know that you were wronged. You were overcome by some evil. Some of you know what it's like to be taken captive against your will. And these wounds seem to dominate your life. And no matter how hard you try to shake yourself free, it seems to pounce on you and hold you over and over again. No matter how much you try to break yourself free from it, it seems to stain you and mark you and be your identity. And like a cruel master, it seems like it will not let go. And sometimes the worst part of the whole thing is you were the one who was wronged and now you find yourself stuck in wrong trying to cope with the whole thing. Sometimes you find yourself doing the very pattern of things that were done to you. And you know really well what it's like to be a slave. You see, what I'm hoping for us is as we read this book, that we wouldn't really be reading just about the slavery of ancient Israelites, but that as you look up from these pages, you would begin to see that this book is giving you a lens by which to understand your own slavery, and that this book might pull you in and cause you to shout as loud and desperately as the people of this book, God set me free. I mean, what if you began to read this book, and I would encourage you to do that. Read it every week as we study. What if you began to pray through this Exodus series, would you let there be an Exodus in my life? Would you let this thing that holds me be set free? Would you break me out as we're going through these weeks? Would you set me free from this thing that holds me? Right? Slavery, this metaphor, is not this abstract idea. I'm saying it's really close to home. One that all of us knows really well. And what if God could use this time together to break you free? Before we leave chapter 1, there's one more thing I want us to consider. And that's that as we look at the slavery of these Israelites, and as we begin to be drawn into the story We're also drawn into their suffering. These guys are slaves. This chapter is a really dark one. The words used is they were put in bitter toil, ruthlessly made to work as slaves. And so what that does is it raises the question, where's God? I mean, they're in slavery. And they're not just in slavery for a season. 400 years! So you have to ask, where is God in that whole thing? One of the remarkable features of this this first two chapters is that God is almost entirely absent. The narrator writes this in a way that God is barely mentioned until you get to chapter 2, verse 20 or so. And so it's almost like the text is allowing you and pushing you to ask the obvious question, which is, where is God in the midst of all this suffering. Where is God in his promises to Abraham for blessing and land and children? Why did God bring them to Egypt if he knew that they were going to be slaves and be slaves for four centuries? When is he going to deliver them? Why is he so silent? Why has he said or done nothing for four centuries? Why has he watched them suffer? Why is this new pharaoh on the throne? And why does he not take him out? This new pharaoh has assumed control and acted like God. Why doesn't just God flick him away? Why does God remain silent? Why do things seem to only get worse rather than better? The the text is pushing you to ask, where's God? Where's mention of him? Where's his hand? Where's his deeds? Where is God in all of this suffering. And I think the text is making you ask, what do you think about God? And how do you understand him, especially in light of passages like this one? You see, I want to remind you, the people who are suffering are God's people. They're the good guys. And the bad guys are the one in power. And God seems to be saying nothing, doing nothing, almost like he's absent. And maybe you'll be tempted to think, well, maybe they got there because of some fault of their own. Maybe they heard something wrong or took a wrong direction. Maybe they're there because of their fault. And, and I need you to go back to Genesis 46. We don't have to go there now. But God literally shows up to Jacob and says, I'm telling you, go down to, ja- to, to Egypt and I will go with you. See, they didn't hear anything wrong. They're there because God wanted them there. Because God sent them there. And almost as if to spoil the surprise, even as far back as Genesis 15, when God makes the covenant in the first place, he already tells them, your descendants are going to be slaves in a foreign land for 400 years. So they're in Egypt because God sent them there. So again, I ask you, what does that do for your thinking of God and how you understand him? I think the truth is, deep down, we've got this theology, this belief system that says, I'm a good person, and so why is this bad thing happening to me? Or we see suffering in the life of someone else, and we implicitly think they must have done something wrong for them to get it like that. Our thinking deep down is, if I'm good, I should not suffer And if someone is suffering, it means that they're bad. Our thinking deep down, and maybe we wouldn't even say it, is, if I'm good, I should not suffer. And if someone is suffering, it means that they're bad. Now, is suffering sometimes the result of sin? Yes. Is it always the result of sin? No. And the Bible, through many stories, will war against this lie in your heart to try and convince you that suffering is not a result of karma, of good and bad. And through many narratives and many stories, it's going to plead with you to fight against this lie. The Bible tells tell you the story of Joseph, a man who did nothing wrong. Just a few chapters left of Exodus. A man who did nothing wrong. And yet at the end of his story, he says, one chapter before Exodus 1, what you intended for evil, God worked for. For good. The scriptures will tell you the, the story of a man named Job, a man who did nothing wrong and yet unspeakable evil was done to him. The scriptures will tell you the story of a man named Jesus who did nothing wrong and yet unspeakable evil was done to him. And so, what the scriptures are going to push you to ask is where is God? in the midst of all this suffering. And what Exodus 1 is going to already begin to show you is, he's right there. His unseen, invisible hand is at work in everything. And I'll prove it to you. I'll show you. Just look at at Exodus 1. Pharaoh determines that the problem of the Hebrew multiplication needs to be stopped. And his solution is, He will enslave them and oppress them. That should take care of it. Look at verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. His enslavement became the actual thing that God used to make them multiply more and spread about even more. I want you to hear this quote from this preacher named Charles Spurgeon, great preacher from long ago. He says, In all probability, if they had been left to themselves, they would have been melted and absorbed into the Egyptian race and lost their identity as God's special people. They were content to be in Egypt and were quite willing to be Egyptianized. To a large degree, they had begun to adopt the superstitions and idolatries and iniquities of Egypt. Spurgeon goes on, but basically his point is other passages of Scripture will tell us that while they were in Egypt, they began to act like the Egyptians you'd find the idols of Egypt in their windows. And so Spurgeon's saying, if Pharaoh had just left them alone, they they would have just assimilated and lost out in who they were. But precisely because he oppresses them, what results is a greater solidarity and unity than he could have ever imagined. He unwittingly works for the very thing that he's trying to prevent. Or or we'll see next week, and, and I won't go into it much this week. But when slavery doesn't seem to exactly work, he comes up with this new plan. Let's kill all the babies. Great idea. That'll end it. But what does that result in? It results in a Hebrew woman taking her baby Moses, who otherwise would have lived with her and grown up to just be a slave like everybody else. But because of his decree, she's got to put him in the water where he is rescued by who else but pharaoh's own daughter and pharaoh ends up footing the bill for his education his upbringing and he grows up in his palace so that he literally raises up the deliverer of god's people this boy would have worked the the brickyard like everyone else and now he gets the finest education almost like he's being prepared to lead a great people his very act raises up His mortal enemy. As you go through this chapter, it's almost comical, like ironical, like everything Pharaoh does not only backfires. It just works to accomplish everything God intends to accomplish. It's like his every deed unwittingly serves God's agenda and accomplishes all that God wants to do. And I want you to hear this. God does that all the time throughout the history of the world. God, what is intended for evil, God is working for good. Do some of them see it in their lifetime? No, 400 years pass, but all of it is working together for good. When you get to the New Testament, you you have the birth of the church. And you know what happens? Some enemies of the church decide we're going to kill the gospel. We're going to kill the word of God and the church by persecution. And you know what Acts says? It uses the same words Moses did. It says the word of God grew and multiplied in direct result to the persecution. So they're going to stomp out Jesus' church. And Jesus' church goes wilder and faster and further than ever before. And God does that all the time. I heard a preacher tell the story of, in China, how they were determined to squash out Christianity. And it's a very shame-based culture, which many of you know of. And so what they decided was they were going to make all the Christians work as garbage collectors. And they were going to send them out to to pick up everyone's trash and so humiliate them and wipe them out. And so by government order, the Christians were forced to go from house to house to house to house to house with access to people that they would never have access to. And they went from house to house to house to house telling everyone they could about Jesus so that Christianity spread wilder and faster and further than it ever could have before. God, what is intended for evil, God works for good. So are the people in in Egypt suffering? Absolutely. Absolutely. But is God working all things together for good? Absolutely. He's using Pharaoh's every move to work against him and work for good. So my hope is as you read this book, and I hope that you will, you're not just reading of the suffering of the ancient Israelites. You're being given lenses by which to understand your own suffering. And to think through it. My hope is that you wouldn't read this removed. But that you'd enter the story. And that you would cry aloud with God's people. Save me. End my suffering. And as you do. Help me to believe. That what was intended for evil. You will work out for good. So friends. Whether in slavery or suffering. Here's what I want to end with. This whole thing is getting you ready for and pointing you to Jesus. Jesus, the one who would come to free us from our slavery and precisely do that through entering our suffering. Do you see that? This whole thing is pushing you forward to Jesus the Christ who will set us free from our slavery and do it through our suffering. I want to show you one last verse. Go to Luke 9, verse 31, and we'll close. (coughs) Luke 9, verse 31. And I want to show you that this story truly is pushing us forward. To Jesus In Luke 9, what's happening is Jesus has climbed this mountain. It's the scene called his transfiguration. And Elijah and Moses show up on the mountain. And in verse 31, they're about to have a conversation. And guess what they're starting to talk about? In verse 30, And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. If you have these black Bibles, do you see that little footnote 1? Above departure, if you look down, what is the word that it says there? Exodus. So the two men, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory, spoke of his exodus, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. This whole book is pointing you forward, pointing you forward to Jesus, who would come to Jerusalem and accomplish the exodus precisely through his suffering. So my hope is that as we look through this book, we would keep being pointed to him. Whether you're in slavery today or in suffering, that Jesus would provide a great exodus for you in this season. Let's pray. Our God, we give you thanks for this time together in your word. I thank you for these brothers and sisters that have sat under your word. We pray that the Holy Spirit would now take these puffs of air that have come from my mouth and plant them deep in our hearts. We pray that you would push us towards the book of Exodus, and by pushing us towards the book, you would push us to Jesus. We pray that you would give us lenses by which to see our slavery, and you would give us lenses by which to see our suffering, and you would help us to see Jesus as the answer to both. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.